When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Emma Sasek's interview with the director for Matilda the Musical, Matthew Warchus. When I grow up, once upon a time, there was a little girl who was trapped. <laughs> when I grow up, this is the story of her great escape. Matilda, my name's Miss Honey. I believe you're a genius. Is maths your favorite thing? What I really like is reading. It's like a holiday in your head. Do you do that a lot? Get away from everything. Now get to bed, you little bookworm. There's a place you must sent if you haven't been good. You're gonna meet the tramp bull mare. Headmistress of Cruncher Mall. This isn't school, it's a prison. They like troublemakers, Wormwood. They make such a lovely sound. When they snap. No! That's not right! You just said no to me. Matilda, you need to be very careful. Miss Chantable, she's dangerous. Eat. Honey, I need to show you something. Oh, yes. We are revolting children living in revolting times. We sing revolting songs. We sing revolting children. Still are revolting songs. It's too early for you. We are revolting. Matilda, your mind is extraordinary. Just the biggest hug in the world. You're a hero. <laughs> Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you again, Matthew, for your time this morning. I'm very excited to talk to you about Matilda because I know that you have such a long history with this musical. Um, But I guess before we really get started, I I know that you love theater. I would just love to know how this love for this art form started for you. Hmm. Um, goodness. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm trying to th- think of the like the short version rather than the long version. So, um, I grew up in a, a village in the middle of nowhere in the north of England, um, miles and miles from a theatre or a cinema or anything, uh, culture 
in a very ugly village with Europe's largest coal-fired power station in the village and just a scattering of houses. And my dad was the vicar of that village and so and looked after the churches in about three villages around. Mm-hmm. But before I was born, he was an actor. Oh. So, um, and then he changed career as I was born. But it meant that I grew up in a household that wasn't afraid of the theatre, um, which I think some people are of going to the theatre. It's not; it wasn't a weird thing to do, and even though it was a long way to go, um, there was nothing near us. Mm-hmm. We would go from time to time. Um, and then the other thing is, I, I grew up as a young kid um, phobic of crowds of people, mm. and um, sometimes wouldn't be able to go into classrooms to have my lessons. So I used to be given special piles of books to read outside my classroom by my friendly teacher and um, eventually I started doing drama um, outside of the syllabus you know not learning it at school but doing music and drama and that suddenly gave me all my confidence to be in a place with lots of people as long as I was performing or involved somehow like that and then when I was a teenager I got a job in my all my vacations building scenery and working backstage at the theatre, 25 miles from home. Oh, wow. I had to train up in the, my vacations, and I would just work backstage from about age 15 as a work experience, and then from 16 onwards in all my vacations till I was 21. So I started to sort of do bits of drama. and um, But anyway, that's the sort of background, long background, that you probably can't use. But I remember seeing some productions when I was young I used to go to the pantomime every year mm-hmm. and um and work pantomime backstage as well and that was very influential and I saw several big touring productions up in Yorkshire that um really affected me as well so for me theatre has been a sort of overwhelming thing since I was young it, it just it was it was it was a lifeline in a way and it, um, it very, very emotional thing for me. So I've always thought that theatre was supposed to do that to the audience. I thought it was supposed to overwhelm an audience. And as a director, that's the kind of thing I go for, emotionally overwhelming things. That's actually such a touching story how it really helped you, you know, overcome some of those fears that you had when you were younger. Do you remember uh, back in that time, if you related to one character more than the other, if you had a play or a musical that really spoke to you in terms of you know just that period of your life that you were trying to go through um well I do remember not I don't remember specific um characters or the one of the biggest productions actually I was a filmed theater production that I saw on tv and it was a film of the Royal Shakespeare Company's Nicholas Nickleby mm. which was like seven hours or something of theater <laughs> installments <laughs> And um, it was interesting to me. It, well, I think about it now, and I, I've just directed Christmas Carol a few years ago at the Old Vic, and that probably owes a lot to that Nicholas Nickleby production. But it was a it, it, that Dickensian world where you got very exaggerated characters, and it was a very environmental production. The characters would be in amongst the audience sometimes, and there was music and dancing and speaking and narration and cruelty and comedy smashing up against each other. And I thought that was a very, you know, formative piece of theatre for me. And as all of those things in the production of Matilda, well, that plus pantomime 
equals Matilda, really. Dickens plus pantomime. <laughs> now, more than 10 years ago at this point, um, you yourself were able to conduct a or put on a production of Matilda at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which I'm sure that sentence in and of itself maybe was something that you never uh, imagined could have happened, but obviously it did. Um, what pulled you to Matilda? Because I remember when I was younger, I watched the, uh, I think it was 1996 film version of it, and I loved her. I loved Matilda and how sneaky and smart and just fun she was in every which way. Um, for yourself, how did you either connect to that material or really just what drew you in? Yes, well, in 1996, I was 30, so I wasn't rushing to see um, the <laughs> film. And I didn't have um, children at that point either, so I had no other reason to see it. So I didn't know that film at all, and I didn't know the book because it was published in 88, I think, 89. Oh. Mm-hmm. So although I knew Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James Giant Peach and stuff, um, I didn't know Matilda. So I first encountered it when the RSC, I was working in New York, and they sent me the first a draft of Dennis Kelly's adaptation with no composer attached and um, just to see if I was interested. And the reason they sent me that is because I had directed years before, maybe like, I don't know, 10 years before or something, a successful production of Peter Pan that was done three or four times and the people from the RSC had seen that and so that's that's why they thought of me because mostly I directed non-family stuff since then so anyway I I encountered this thing and I was reading it I thought it was brilliantly written it was very very funny and and powerful and moving and made me laugh and cry which is always a big deal um, it's something which does both of those things um, is rare and really um, it's like striking gold when you find it. And um, for me, and I, I um, and I don't know why. I think the reason, probably, why it made me uh, moved me so much was part of my experience of being at school was being bullied as well. Mm. And so the. The, the side of it, which is a, about bullying and about somebody about the defense of creative imagination. She has this, she's a girl with an amazing brain and it makes her very, very intelligent and very, very imaginative. And everything, everybody, her parents and her school um, it, uh, headmistress is pitted against that. And there seemed as a kind of war between Philistinism and culture hmm. um, or stupidity and intelligence <laughs> as well. And, um, so, and I really responded to that because I felt a bit like that growing up. Um, I, I felt a, my own little minor mini version of that. Um, I had to hide the fact that I was re reasonably bright and being um, uh, in, inventive and imaginative and being interested in sort of creativity wasn't really, I had two brilliant teachers who did encourage that, but generally speaking, it wasn't uh, a thing to be proud of when I was growing up. So it reminded me about my school days, and I felt strongly about that. And <clears throat> I think like Dennis Kelly and like Tim Minchin, actually, which is why they're both such a good fit, I share with them a sort of sense of, I don't know, um, moral fervor, if you like in, like, in in believing that we should try and make the world better. And we should try and do that through our writing and our directing and our 
composing and our actions and interactions and our creativity as well, our relationships. So, and of course, everybody would would agree that that's the right thing to be. But I think it's really inspiring that this tiny little person who seemingly should be powerless is so um, committed to that ideology that she is able to use her all her creative forces to um, change the world for a better place. So I think it, the, almost, if you like, to be honest, the politics of the story really, mm. really grabbed me. Mm-hmm. And um, and the other thing, by the way, I will just say is that I noticed, because while I was waiting for the script to arrive in New York in the days before we were emailing scripts around, I read the book for the first time. <laughs> so when it arrived, I was expecting it to, I was interested to see how I was going to deal with it because the book is a series of install- chapters they yeah. don't really have an overarching um, shape to them as a as a single piece. You know, they are. It's it, it's not. It's created for reading in installments. It's not created for performing in one narrative sweep. And but it arrived. It wasn't like that at all. It had this um, shape to it and this um, beginning, middle, and end. And the, the way Dennis had done it is woven in a story um, that Matilda seemingly makes up about an acrobat and an escapologist. And I thought this is absolutely brilliant because I'd seen when I read the book how what the challenges were and how difficult it would be to turn into a a show. Mm-hmm. He arrived with a solution. I thought this is brilliant. He's taken another Royal Dahl story and he's mashed in, he's woven <laughs> it into Matilda's story. So I've, I contacted him to congratulate him on that. And I said, where is that other Dahl story you got? He said, no, I made that one up. <laughs> and, uh, so then I thought, well, this is an incredible few, um, meeting of minds yeah. uh, between Royal Dahl and Dennis Kelly. He's really, Dennis is able to just easily speak with Dahl's voice and, 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 and add, add structure and shape, um, dramatic structure and shape, which isn't required in the book. That uh, acrobatic story was one of my favorite parts of the film, which I got to see last night. I was very much invested in the story, like the librarian, <laughs> just him yes. eating and waiting on every single wor- word. Mm, um, you know, good. in general, since you are the director behind this now Netflix uh, Matilda, the musical film, uh, what is it like having to move from the stage to to the screen when it comes to a production that you are very much familiar in one one sense uh, and then having to take on this whole new challenge with so many children actors around which I'm sure (laughs) it was Mm. both wonderful and also a little complicated with so many young minds running wild (laughs) yes you've watched them in unforgettable adventures love affairs and tragedies Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. Well, there's lots of things there. I mean, there are so many things um, 
that come into play in the job of tr um, translating it from one medium to another. Yeah. We, we would we could spend days talking about them, but and luckily we had about three years to 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 do that, conceive it, yeah. um, because of COVID and everything, and that really helped. In fact, we also had the eight seven years uh preceding that to think about it whilst yeah. the show was running on stage and i think that amount of time thinking time was really important because if the show had just opened on stage and it was very much still blazing in my mind that version of it i think it would be hard to reconsider it and um re reconceive it mm -hmm. um and i think it's not a uh, it, it, there's a good reason why it's very rarely the stage director who directs a film of any stage to screen adaptation. Um, it's frustrated a lot of people, but I think I understand why it might be a better idea in lots of cases for it to mm. be a different person because you've mm -hmm. got to behave and think like a different person. Mm. And I must say, I feel for the executives, the producers at Working Title, Sony, and Netflix who were probably worrying like crazy that I was going to just basically, you know, do the stage version on screen <laughs> and, and had every right, every right to expect that I would be locked into a version. And Dennis as well. But I think the fact that, you know, Dennis and I, we, we really wanted to be different people when we were doing this different job. And so we were able to look askance and at arms and uh, the stage production and put it at arm's length and to recognize what its transferable asset, assets were transferable skills of that story mm -hmm. um, and which weren't transferable you know and, and it's a very very theatrical stage production it's quintessentially theatrical um it just takes all of the things that theater does well um the stage show and exploits them all <laughs> pushes uh, them all that, out there <laughs> it does and and that actually means that it's just gone so far in that direction of theatrical it's, it's miles away from film so much of it is and that's kind of helpful because there's no confusion like maybe that bit could work there's no yeah. way that could work no way <laughs> that could work. so we have to start again so that helped um and I suppose what appealed to me, because there's another long conversation which should be, which I'll summarize, what appealed to me about the process, two things actually, mm -hmm. um, paradoxically, two almost opposite things. One is the obvious opening out thing that you can do, where we could um, create a much bigger world um, for the story, um, the village where Matilda lives, the whole as you as you uh, alluded to the circus you know doesn't appear on stage at all it's a shadow puppet moment projected oh, okay. and um the uh so that's all you know visually completely starting from scratch that whole world and the school of course we don't need a school on stage we just need nine desks and a blackboard and that's done and um so that whole building out of the world and expanding the um vision is, is is good not just because of spectacle which in and of itself is exciting but because of all the extra emotional charge you get from uh making those decisions because not only is now trunchbull uh, a fearful powerful domineering force but her entire school building is uh -huh. that as well which you don't <laughs> have so the building out opening up was exciting and then the other 
thing that was exciting, most exciting was the close-ups, which we can't do that on stage either. Everything right. is in a is in a um, a group shot on stage, obviously. Right. And um, but the close-ups became interesting because again, then the emotional charge goes up because you can really spend time uh, right up close to people like characters like Miss Honey, for example, right. and Matilda herself. And the access to I picked those two characters because they've got some of the, the deepest, most um, profound emotion in the story, and being able to get a camera close up to that is was new and really exciting. And then the last thing about your the thing about the children, I committed to the idea when we found the location. We didn't know how many kids were going to be in the film, but when we found <laughs> the location for the school, we looked at the building, and I said, "Well, that's a." load of kids <laughs> yeah <laughs> if this is our school and i wanted it to be our school because we looked at smaller places as well and i looked at this i said this is the crunchham hall but it means we need hundreds of kids yeah <laughs> and, so, and then i got into that with ellen kane the choreographer and i said look i'm going to go for hundreds of kids and this is when we can really deploy them the school song the um bruce revolting children particularly those three numbers so having made a commitment to give ourselves that challenge and just work and work uh, on complicated material with hundreds of kids it was sort of self-inflicted and for all the right reasons so um and and it turns out you know that it, it was a logistical nightmare but the kids were brilliant and extremely you know um well behaved and but they were doing stuff in a almost military fashion it was a lot of drilling a lot of repetition, mm. um, a lot of hard work from them and being schooled at the same time and having COVID tests at the same time and everything like that. So it was a big undertaking. But they are, you know, the great thing about children is up to a point, they <laughs> they don't tire. They, they no, they immense, don't. <laughs> they've got immense energy. I mean, you then when you when you've got them tired, you think you you know okay, time to stop because that's yes. if, if they're tired, then it's really tiring. <laughs> they have immense energy, so that that was good. And 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 the project of working with Matilda, uh, Alicia, um, mm -hmm. as a child, uh, the child Alicia, and the children, um, for example, in this in the school songs, that was mm -hmm. a very different project, mm -hmm. you know, and um, working in very different ways. But I feel that um, actually something that we found is true of the stage show and true of the film. Having children involved is almost like a blessing on it, weirdly, because it makes every all the adults up their game. Mm -hmm. Everybody feels very protective, uh, very um, committed to doing good work uh, around them and allowing children to do good work. It's uh, there's suddenly a lot of compassion, a lot of concern, and a lot of fun as well. Mm. High, you know, um, upbeat feelings and things like that. So it's uh, it's not, yeah. The pluses, the pluses, um, really outweigh the um, the extra challenges of it by a long shot. I do love hearing that that everybody kind of banded together to protect and make it as wonderful an environment as possible and. Um, as you said, I, you have wonderful cast members in this film, from Emma Thompson to Lashana Lynch, but my goodness, Alicia Weir, she just steals the show with all of her scenes. I mean, what a young, bright talent and career she must have ahead of her at this point. Yes, and what I do, you know, 
from working with a lot of children in the past and um but I've, um each time we do a new cast of Matilda on stage sorry I, I don't think it's great to be talking about the stage all the time stage production all the time but, I, but I'll just briefly say we always yeah. have four Matildas at any one time and every six months or nine months or whatever they change cast so there's been hundreds of kids play Matilda mm-hmm. and they've done a, a big job of being on stage for two hours um, and sort of carrying the show on their shoulders, each one of them. But it's a different thing to find one Matilda. And if you like, for the purpose of casting the film, what you're looking for is the Matilda, not a Matilda. Yeah. And um, so that was a, an interesting thing about the search. And, and there were actually lots and lots of talented kids. Um, we saw, obviously saw um, thousands of people in the bigger group and hundreds got down to hundreds and to tens. And we saw a lot, a lot of talent. And what is so great about Alicia is that she's immensely talented. Talent alone won't get you through this experience in a positive way. Um, You need two other really important qualities. And one is a groundedness and a maturity, Uh a sort of um, a sense of balance and um, just strength, really, and balance um, to uh, root all of that talent that you've got and to sustain yourself through what which is a marathon. Um, basically the shooting of film for 120 days is yeah. a marathon. And then the second thing is family. And she's you need family support. Um, yeah. So and her family were really, really supportive and uh, and grounding for her. So she actually lived a surprisingly normal life whilst doing this extraordinary, unusual thing, which was really important. And it may be that she has a career as an actor, but being talented as a kid doesn't oblige you to have a career in that thing that you're talented at. Yeah. She might choose lots of other things. And so and I think it'll just be exciting. You know, th- what will serve her well is that she's really bright and um, attentive mm-hmm. and courageous. And I always try to praise the children that I work with for the specific things they've got. Because if you say to a kid, you're amazing, they think, oh, that's great. It's like giving them a sugar rush. But they don't really know how to do that, get up and do that tomorrow. Yeah. Because if you say you're an amazing listener or um, and your singing voice is so uh, accurate or you were really brave today or I know you were tired, but you worked really hard, which was brilliant, which was great. Then they know they can get up tomorrow and do that again. So I, very I don't smart want of you. I don't want to oblige her to feel like she's got to. Um, to knock out another 10 movies um, <laughs> uh, and and play leading roles and stuff like that. She should do what she chooses to do, but she did it extremely, she's done an extremely good job on this. Yes, she did. I like that approach. That's actually a very, very smart and a great way to keep someone grounded any age, I think. You don't yeah. want to, don't need to inflate anyone a little bit too much. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matthew, I know we have to wrap up. I just want to say it's been such a pleasure to chat with you today about this film. I'm very excited for more people to see it and a perfect film for the holiday season, I think. Yes, I'm excited. You know, it's the first time as a director, you just tell stories in order to entertain and uplift and inspire your audience. But my audience has been always in the thousands oh. and it's uh, the idea that the audience would suddenly be exponentially increased to millions yes. is going to 
a completely new experience for me. Uh, as a middle-aged man, a middle-aged director, I'm having a brand new experience and it's going to be very exciting. Hey, we always love brand new experiences on this planet. <laughs> hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Emma Sassick's interview with the director for Matilda the Musical, Matthew Warchus, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Matilda the Musical is now currently playing in select theaters and will be available to stream on Netflix on December 25th. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Right.